Ladies and gentlemen, we are finally here. <laughs> Episode whatever. I don't know what the number is going to be. Probably five or six, something like that. But we're A, finally here <laughs> with the one and the only Elizabeth Lynn Morgan. It's Lynn, right? It is Lynn. Uh, yeah, that would have yes. been embarrassing, but it's yeah. Lynn. Elizabeth is my grandmother's name. Elizabeth. Lynn was my grandfather's name. Aren't I lucky? And it's Welsh, right? Isn't <laughs> it Welsh? No. Okay. Well, well, Morgan. Morgan is Welsh. Morgan is Welsh. Yes. Which is actually why part of the reason we chose the name Pridery, because uh, the Morgan family had a unique connection with... Uh, with Wales. With Wales, yeah. So we're here. Sorry, we're wearing winter gear. It finally got cold, and in Austin, when it gets cold... We just immediately put up the white flag and put on every jacket we have because we're spoiled rotten. So and and honestly, cold today was thirty eight degrees. We're not talking. It was cold. I mean, it was yeah, yeah. Well, just yeah. so that everyone understands, we weren't saying it was fifty degrees and freezing. It at least was thirty eight. If anyone's listening in Alaska, don't at me because I know that we're. I know that I've lost all touch with reality. Yeah. Okay, so Elizabeth is the founding partner of our law firm, the firm that I, that I work at currently, Elizabeth Morgan and Associates. Um, you've probably heard a couple episodes, maybe maybe you have it, maybe this is the first one you're hearing, but um, we wanted to establish and do kind of an introductory episode to talk about why we do what we do, the vision for why we do what we do, and um, why it's unique and why we think it's very needed in this space and what's actually happening. So um, Elizabeth... Um, graduated from the University of Texas Law School in 2018. Congratulations. <laughs> 2018. <It's... laughs> Wouldn't that be so great? <laughs> <laughs> she's she's accomplished quite a lot for only being practicing for four years. Don't forget Baylor undergrad. We got to, you know, call out. Go Bears. Go Bears. Go yeah. Bears. Yeah, no. Um, so she graduated University of Texas Law School. That was her JD. But before that, you went to Queens Mary College in London. I did. And you studied finance there, right? Uh, international finance, yes. Okay, bring and it a little closer so that we can. International finance and jurisprudence. Okay. Um, international banking, yeah, all of those really cool things at Queen Mary's. And that was super helpful because you ended up dealing with a lot of different financial products and things that that integrated really closely with the field that you're in now, with asset protection, estate planning, all that stuff, trust planning, and administration. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, uh, one of the things that isn't on my resume that that actually was a really pivotal moment. I, I I went to school in Mexico City. I minored in Spanish. Oh, really? In undergrad. And I was there when the peso devalued um, in the, it must have been in 19, I don't know, 82 or mm. so. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I remember walking out of the house where I was staying with a family and uh, there was an exchange you know, currency exchange booth, and literally the peso against the dollar was flipping. It it was flipping oh that quickly, and uh, people were grabbing me, begging for my dollars to <laughs> stop this slide of their you know their currency. So as a you know really young kid, I was probably twenty years old. Yeah. Um, to experience that, Bolios, the government stopped subsidizing Bolios and cooking oil and. Um, you know, the things that were staples for the yeah. community. and um, The floor fell out. The absolute floor fell out. Yeah. So to experience that as a kid and understand uh, government control and regulatory um, issues and how it affects kind of ordinary people and how important a currency can be mm -hmm. in terms of a leveler, you know, if uh, because 
in order to try and maintain some value in their pesos, they needed U.S. dollar, uh, you know, a lot of currencies. But I happen to be the clear American, blonde hair, blue-eyed person standing on the sidewalk <laughs> who uh, might have some, some dollars. So yeah. anyway, yes, those both of those experiences were yeah, incredibly and that, important. And that was formative for you because you really realized that monetary policy and has a huge deal. Monetary and regulatory and fiscal policy, all of it, and central banking can have a huge effect on ordinary people in ways that people don't even really understand. Correct. All they know is they, they only know it when it happens, right. but they can't see it coming and they don't understand what's happening behind the scenes. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, maybe we'll just launch into that now then. So like part of the, the accusation, I will say the allegation um, against asset protection as a field of legal practice is mm -hmm. that you're just basically doing favors for rich people and fixing all their backdoor deals and hiding money overseas right. so they don't have to pay taxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But your perspective on this, and when I first started working on here and hearing this from me is totally different. It, from your perspective, this is actually a robust part of the private economy that has to exist in order for the American system to actually function. Because as things get more and more centralized, and as more and more power becomes centralized, currency power, regulatory power, and you get more and more pushback against private property, um, it ends up going in bad directions. So right, absolutely, and and I think that, um, and we can you know flesh this out just a little bit more in these you know next few moments. But um, uh, the concept that asset protection is you know somehow going to the dark side, right? Um, and and it can be viewed that way. When I left the big law firm to do this, absolutely, I had gone to the dark side. But I was raised by a, a dad who was an economist and, um, you know, had some military intelligence background and um, the, you know, and then had some very strong kind of pro-freedom constitutional views. And so the idea of a free economy and a free market and the way capitalism is supposed to work, not mm -hmm. crony capitalism, but mm -hmm. actual free trade movement of goods and services requires and, and really demands that, um, that ordinary people like you and I have the ability mm -hmm. to freely trade in goods and services without centralized management. The idea is that the market's going to adjust for itself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so the you know just going back to that you know currency issue, um, you know if those individuals had been able to, you know, handle the situation themselves without kind of centralized oversight, perhaps it would have been a different result. And I know a lot of people will argue, no, we need this regulatory body because. You know, ordinary people aren't going to be able to adjust appropriately, and and I'm not saying, and and you know, as these podcasts go on, I think it will become more clear. It's not that we're saying that regulation is bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, some regulation is really good, mm -hmm. but the concept of a a free market economy where ordinary people can establish businesses mm -hmm. and can figure out a way to compete mm -hmm. in a way that benefits themselves and their communities is really integral to the American dream and to our Constitution. Yeah. So the ability to manage capital, to own and manage capital, is unique to our system. So just to give like a, a broad perspective, too, you have, you have two big sectors of the economy. You have publicly traded and regulated businesses. Right. And then you have private equity, 
which are owned by individuals or small groups of partnerships or whatever right. it is. And we work mostly on the private equity side. We do very, very little with the public side. But but the the difference comes into play because you have these huge multinational corporations that have so much lobbying power and so much ability to affect change in the regulatory system. And it becomes this very, the Venn diagram gets smaller and smaller and smaller between big business and between government interest. And so what ends up happening is the people that get squeezed are the private equity side of things. Right. So as he has like a government has more and more ability to, to manipulate the currency, to regulate public business, and then the public business goes after its only competitors, which are private businesses. And so what ends up happening is like you have nobody defending the smaller private side of things and because everybody and more and more people are getting centralized and consolidated into the public side of things. That's just the way I – that's generally how I look at it. And so from our perspective, if you have privately managed capital, businesses, small businesses, family offices, estate plans, trust administration, all that kind of stuff – um, on the private side, it's super integral to the whole American system, and that's very that's that's unique in the Western world. Really, it's a, it's based on a Judeo-Christian concept of private property, which does not exist in every country. I mean, right. um, from your perspective, that you've worked in a lot of different countries and seen kind of the division that they have between public and private capital and seen how it's way more centralized in other places, and that's led to some things that you that uh, to consequences that aren't necessarily always good. Right. So <clears throat> one of the things that – so let's just kind of start at the very beginning, right, a very good place to start. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, the, America was founded by a group of individuals, primarily, you know, business people, mm -hmm. right, um, and farmers, you know, people who understood – uh, how, you know, I have to put money into a crop and then I have to sell it. And what happens if I have bad weather? And, you know, there are all of these issues that can go into those kinds of things, right? But it was a unique – our country is a unique social experiment, yeah. an economic experiment. Yes. And, um, you know, I would encourage – one of the things I'd love us to do in the future is really talk about, you know, a lot of those uh, – uh, of the writings and the thinking of the individuals who founded our country because it's absolutely amazing um, how much thought went into it. So in, in order to understand <clears throat> our Constitution and our legal system, first you have to look at where were these individuals coming from. They were coming from primarily European jurisdictions mm -hmm. that didn't have concepts of free capital, right? Mm -hmm. You had airship of property. It had to pass in accordance with very strict rules. You know, it only went to the oldest son. It didn't go to the daughters. There was um, restrictions on uh, transfer. On tra on transfer. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there was no ability for the middle class. If there was a debt, if you had a debt, you went to prison, mm -hmm. right? There was no way to reorganize your debt. So who is going to take a risk mm -hmm. if you're going to go to prison? Um, there was no ability for any upward movement from a lower socioeconomic class. I mean, clearly not a caste system, but almost, right? Because mm -hmm. if you don't have the ability as an individual who was born without money to borrow money, take a risk, you know, have a business, et cetera, there's not going to be free movement of capital. Um, the... Uh, 
so our forefathers came from those environments mm -hmm. and were deep thinkers and established a system that had some really important components to avoid the problems they had seen in their home, home country. So a couple of them are the concept that uh, it would be against our public policy to restrict uh, alienation of property. Mm -hmm. So that's a very... Uh, By alienation, you mean transfer. Transfer, like, Give sorry. it to whoever. You, you don't have to give it to somebody within a title of nobility or whatever. You can just give it to, you can sell it to whoever. Whoever you want. Yeah. That's right. Thanks for mm -hmm. giving me the ordinary No, no, no. Language. Just trying to, yeah. yes. um, so, <laughs> just trying to normalize a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's one concept. Another concept that is integral to the system is, this, uh, is the concept of bankruptcy. So in all other Western countries, you have the concept of a receivership, which is better than debtor's prison, right? Mm -hmm. But it's only a little bit better because what happens in a receivership is if you owe me money, Kevin, mm -hmm. I can go to a court and say, look, he owes me money, appoint a receiver to take whatever he has and then pay me back until it's done, then he can get that property back, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't give you any ability. And what happens with all the other creditors? So if I'm the first creditor on the block, I get your assets. Now, there are some systems for, you know, the creditors duking it out a little bit, but our system is different. It's a system of bankruptcy, which is also uh, built on a Judeo-Christian concept of grace. If I, if I am, um, if I, if I am a, uh, a debtor, right, um, and I don't have the means to pay back all the debt, I can go to bankruptcy court and petition the court and ask that my debt be discharged mm -hmm. or forgiven, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's a free start. It's a start over. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that is unique to the American system. And it really is based on this concept that there are people who are worthy of receiving yes. grace. It's, right. a, it's a theological concept. I mean, it even, is. Even, even in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right. He was making a very practical exclamation there. It was like, because at the time, if you in that system, for example, mm -hmm. if you had debts, you just went to prison, like you said. Yeah. So it really is a, it is rooted in grace, this idea that, that money is not important enough to ruin someone's entire life permanently. So we have this concept of bankruptcy where we can you can right. discharge that you can actually get a clean slate. You might your credit might be terrible, but you can at least continue with your and, life and not be and and you can move on right. right. And what does that do? It does a couple of things. First of all, it uh, encourages entrepreneurship. Right. Right. If I know that it's not going to be the end of the world if I don't succeed, then I'm going to be. You know, it's, I'm not going to be as worried about starting a business, borrowing money, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the other thing that it does is it allows people to start over, mm -hmm. which is also something that's really important. If you want to have a free market economy, you can't have – you have to encourage people mm -hmm. to go out and try new things, right? Now, mm -hmm. on balance, the bankruptcy judges are federal judges. They're smart. They're going to make good decisions about whether that per and the creditors by the way are going to be arguing whether or not that debt gets discharged. So there are checks and balances in the system to make sure that individuals aren't you know getting debt forgiven too readily. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'd like to do a whole podcast on the 2005 bankruptcy act amendments to mm -hmm. talk about the consequence 
I believe, on our economy. But since right now we're still just talking about big picture concepts, mm -hmm. one of the things that would be good for the audience to think about is um, if we didn't have our bankruptcy system, right, we end up in a government bailout kind of world, mm -hmm. which um, I remember when Mitt Romney was debating with Barack Obama. Okay. When he was debating with Barack Obama mm -hmm. um, when they were running for president, and the issue came up the difference between when General Motors had been bailed out by the government, right? So the question was, was that the right thing to do, or would bankruptcy have made more sense? And honestly, they were really talking about bailouts. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Barack Obama absolutely supported the bailout system. Mitt Romney, no matter what you think of him, Mitt Romney rightly said, no, bankruptcy is good enough, right? You don't want the government controlling who gets money. Right. You want a free market system mm -hmm. to decide that, mm -hmm. right? And I remember it was almost a pivotal moment when I went, oh my gosh, you know, Barack Obama, brilliant, you know, lawyer, is arguing for government bailouts. Right. And Mitt Romney, the businessman, is arguing for bankruptcy. And one of the things I realized is the majority of people don't even know the difference. Mm -hmm. They don't know why they w should want or pref you know, have a preference for bankruptcy versus a government bailout. And the reason you want bankruptcy instead of a government bailout is you don't want people with conflicted views and interests who might even own an interest in General Motors mm -hmm. deciding that they get money versus XYZ car manufacturing company. I don't know, Saab, you know, one of the companies that's gone out of business, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Who decides what gets the right. money? Wouldn't it be better for those companies to come in front of a bankruptcy court with judges and their creditors and mm -hmm. work it out instead mm -hmm. of giving control to people who are conflicted, mm -hmm. which will be a whole other set of podcasts? Uh, There's a specific line of creditors when you get in, and by line I mean an actual queue of who mm -hmm. gets who gets money first, who's a preferred creditor, who who put the most on the line initially, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And the bankruptcy court goes through that very systematically and says you get money first, you get money second, you get this, you get what's left over. And what a bailout does is it just the government skips the line and just says we're going to pay who we want to pay. Right. And so it essentially became a whole nother. Yeah. And I'm going to do this because it looks really funny. Y'all have been all looking at the bar over my face. I think this <laughs> works, right? I think this is better. Yeah, as okay. long as it's close because okay. that's what the headphones are for, so you can hear right. how, how loud it is. Yeah, but, but I, this I mean, is better, and maybe we should even. But but the <laughs> with regard to the bankruptcy system, Kev, to the point you just made, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, the, the next thing our forefathers did, so we've kind of talked about some of it, they set up a, a series of concepts about what assets should be exempt if you did fail. Right, mm -hmm. and those were very principled ideas. One is your homestead. You know, your family needs a roof over its head, mm -hmm. and so your homestead is exempt, mm -hmm. generally speaking. That's a big picture concept. Um, <laughs> if you go look at the old statutes, they would also exempt, you know, a horse and a plow right. and, and, and a saddle. The basic and, stuff. <laughs> to right, live. the basic yeah. stuff. Yeah. So that was the personal property exemption. Mm -hmm. Then it grew to include things like life insurance because life insurance also means that the provider for the family, when they die, there would be cash to take care of the wife and children or husband and children, et cetera. That also was important to how do we keep the societal family structure fed and, and not off of you know, the streets 
which is where our forefathers came from, there was just rampant yeah. poverty, right? So and how do we do that without relying on government and centralization? Right. So this is the concept yeah. that we're we're kind of establishing here. The the federal constitutional republic, which is our system, was essentially an experiment in how little centralization can we get away with? Exactly. With and have a functioning federal government. So there was these two groups, these two factions, the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, and they were arguing back and forth constantly. Hamilton was a Federalist. Uh, Patrick Henry is an Anti-Federalist. And they were ar- constantly arguing about how much can we get away with? Centralized currency? Bad idea. Right. Uh, centralized bank? Hamilton finally went out on that argument and we decided to go with a centralized bank. It was not the Fed. It was just a treasury. It was essentially an ability to print currency, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look in the Federalist Papers, back to the currency concept, they were against fiat currency. They were against a lot of these concepts because they were fundamentally opposed to what they had just come from, or they were they were fundamentally aligned with the systems that they were trying to get away with, which is what you're talking about. So right. really the American system, what Elizabeth was talking about with in terms of bankruptcy, was um, you had essentially a lot of farmers – a lot of small business people, a lot of people that were just wanting to make their own living in the most liberty-friendly place possible. Right. I want to make as many decisions for myself as I possibly can with as little government intervention as possible, with enough centralization to make a decision uh, to, to provide for some basic amenities, to have a military so that we're not vulnerable. But that was it. And then beyond that, so even in these bankruptcy concepts, which is what Elizabeth is talking about, we want... We don't want to have to, if we lose everything in bankruptcy, we want to have the ability to start over by ourselves and right. not just get a check from the government. We want to still have a plow, still have a home, still have a farm, still have these a life insurance policy so that we can continue these things on our own without having to call the state of Texas or have, having to call the federal government and get money from them. So that's kind of like the the system that we live in is one of – that prefers liberty to centralization, which has its consequences. That's right. It has its consequences. People can make bad decisions with liberty. But that was the trade, ultimately, that our forefathers were willing to make, which is that we'd rather have liberty and less centralization because we think it's a better path, ultimately. And and to, and to that point that you just made, um, because this was built on, on Judeo-Christian values and, of course, the reform movement in England – uh, and in Europe was uh, was also part of the driver. So yeah. a lot of the people, my family, my forefathers came in 1639 and 1642 as part of the reform movement. Um, and and if you think about it, that too had its underpinnings. And we want liberty. Yeah. We yep. want to be able to read the Bible in our own language. Mm-hmm. We don't want someone to tell us what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they started reading it, they went, you know, holy Toledo. Wow. Right. There's some great concepts here. And <laughs> I don't think they said holy Toledo. Just, to, <laughs> just in case. Exactly. Just a little disclaimer. OK. Um, but, you know, that, too, was part of the driver. But unfortunately or fortunately, in order for that system to work, it's based on two really important concepts, personal responsibility mm-hmm. and accountability mm-hmm. and sacrificial or uh, servant leadership, mm-hmm. right? Which actually go together in a way that has a kind of a beautiful result. In other words, I'm gonna take responsibility and accountability for my own mistakes, 
but I also am going to be a servant leader. It was the concept of you know, leadership in the community and at the state and why states and communities had more power than the federal government because we we're going to be accountable to our own communities, et cetera. And as those concepts have been eroded, it's caused us to cause our system to be more difficult to support right. and cause this, you know, misplaced or properly placed desire for globalization. And we'll, we'll talk about that, but more centralized management, because as you lose accountability, and that is something we'll talk about when we talk about the Bankruptcy Act Amendment, you know, if we don't hold corporations and individuals accountable for their own bad decisions, and the Fed was actually, that's how... The, you know, the Fed was established by a group of bankers who wanted to have a system yeah. on that, Jekyll Island. Uh, on Jekyll Island, exactly. But a system that allowed them to make bad decisions or risky right. decisions and not be held accountable for the consequences of those risky decisions. So as we start to unpack kind of why we do what we do with asset protection and why we believe it's so important for a free economy to protect entrepreneurs, et cetera. We have, there's, there is a real need to understand what the underpinnings were and what some of the bigger concepts have been in the past and are presently and will be in the future. Mm -hmm. It's always, always, always a trade-off between liberty and safety, essentially, right. in the most simple terms, because all of these programs that she's talking about, the Fed, um, the increasing centralization, all of this is rooted in allegedly good intentions. Right. The Fed was yeah. created as a response to the yeah. Great Depression. That's right. All of these, um, you know, the bankruptcy law changes, all that is, is allegedly from good intentions. But the right. problem is it erodes away at the libertarian underpinnings of this nation right. and it, what it ends up in is a weird hybrid system where we have a lot of libertarian concepts left where people are able to bankruptcy those kinds of things and then you have all these other little loopholes for other parts of the economy the public sector of the economy and it creates a weird um, kind of hybridized system but it's always that balance there's always a trade-off do you want do you want the government mm -hmm. to take care of you or do you want to take care of yourself Right. Because it's risky to take care of yourself. It's a lot of responsibility to take care of yourself. Right. But if you allow the government to do it, they get to tell you what to do now. Right. And it's there's constantly that back and forth. And people don't realize that because it's a very subtle distinction. A lot of them think that I can keep all my rights and yet get everything I want from the government. That seems to be the new kind of modus operandi for the American right. populace. Yeah, it's true. How can I get have all yeah. my rights no, and yet <clears throat> get everything possible from the government? It's like, I'm sorry, but you can't have both. Right. There is no – if you make an apparatus that's big enough to control and make all the decisions in a centralized economy, then the rights disappear. The The example that was always given to me was that the, the Soviets had a constitution. I don't know if you knew this. They had a Bill of Rights. They had a Bill of Rights that put ours to shame. Really? Yeah. I didn't you had the, know that. You had the right to bread. You had the right to fresh water. You had the right to this wow. and that and this yeah. and that. But none of it mattered. It wasn't worth the paper it was written on because the system of government that was set up was so centralized, it didn't matter, ultimately, mm -hmm. if yeah. those rights got violated. The party just did whatever they wanted. The difference between that and our system is we actually have a system that respects the rights that we have in a Bill of Rights. We have a, a kind of government where the the different factions interplay against each other 
and ambition is checked against ambition so that people can keep their rights. But the more you give away and the more you cede to a centralized government in exchange for goodies, essentially, um, the more that gets eroded away and the more it doesn't look like what it started as. So I think part of the reason... So I, what we're trying to accomplish here is like kind of twofold. We're trying to explain why we do what we do, but at the same time, we're kind of trying to explain to people why these libertarian systems existed in the first place and what the alternatives are. And why it's, which is, why it's so important. And one of the things that <clears throat> one of the kind of to come back um, to what, the way you started, which is why do we do what we do? Um, I, I started my life at a huge law firm and huge law firms from a financial or economic standpoint will represent the bigger interests who pay a lot more money. So to find people who will support entrepreneurs, small business, uh, the individual owners, that, that's not a huge group of people. But we are passionate, mm -hmm. passionate about protecting the, uh, giving entrepreneurs the tools they need because we really, really, really believe. We don't just say it, it's not lip service. We believe that closely held business, entrepreneurship, uh, small business is the backbone of a free economy. And we want to support that in all ways that we can. Some of it's the podcast, some of it is going to be materials and information to help them do that. Because there is a, only a small group of people who will support that industry because the money, mm -hmm. generally speaking, isn't there, mm -hmm. right? The money gravitates up to you know the larger interests, and as this shifts, mm -hmm. right, so that we have more centralized um, management and money and control, the less opportunity there is for entrepreneurs to have resources that they need to achieve the balance. Because there's always got to be a balance to keep this free market libertarian system afloat. And just to give a very practical example of how this plays out with our practice, we have a client who uh, a federal agency went after him, small-time entrepreneur, um, that this federal agency is supposed to be regulating big financial interests. That's right. its whole point. That's the reason it existed. It, it was created out of the, the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. It's supposed to be going after big banks. It's spending its time going after small players, finding backwater statutes right. that no one's used in years. 30 years mm -hmm. and going after our clients with these old statutes that aren't even relevant anymore. They're not even close to being relevant, but they're still on the books. When you fund an agency like that with huge congressional funding, what it creates is an arm, is a hammer that has to hit something. Right. And so what we're seeing increasingly is the like a lot of time, it's a very subtle distinction because we're talking about protecting private businesses, et cetera. And a lot of people are going, well, what do you mean? There, there doesn't seem like there's a big war going on. Right. But you, you don't understand the discretion of the government to be able to go after certain individuals and to be able to go from a from an economic perspective. And whether it's from uh, with a, a statute or with taxes or whatever is is huge. And right. you've seen this before, too, many times in our practice where it's like if you're not in on the side that's united with the regulators in yeah. some way, um, you end up being left out in the cold and the agencies just come after you. Right. And, of course, this doesn't happen in every situation. The federal agencies go after big players, too. There's 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 a lot of um, 
good things that happen with those regulators. Again, we're not anti-regulation or right. anti-anything like that. But we just see the pro- – it's not prosecutorial discretion, but it's the discretion to go after certain players um, – ends up making a huge difference in the private economy. Right. And we're going to have to probably wrap up, but I just want to close by saying uh, one thing. One of the things that people don't realize is that what we refer to them as regulatory super creditors. Right. There is no check and balance, right? You cannot sue a a federal regulatory body unless they consent, right? right? (laughs) So what check and balance is there? The check and balance should be congressional oversight. Yes. But when you have a system that's as conflicted as ours is, um, then what it and, – and I've seen this over the last 15 years using regulatory uh, super creditors to target political enemies mm-hmm. actually has been on the rise. And we'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit. We saw that with the IRS actually targeting conservative charitable foundations – um, at Lois Lerner, et cetera. And nothing happened and nothing. from a congressional perspective. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so again, that those are some of the reasons that we do what we do and part of the purpose for our podcast. And uh, we're just looking forward to this journey. So thanks, you guys. Talk awesome. to you later. Thanks, everybody. Bye.